So we are uh, in, uh, this, is the, this is the week, by the way. This is the week of the eclipse when the message in Genesis is in the Torah portion for this week. This will never happen again. All right. So get the date, get the time. All right. We are in chapter 13 of uh, Genesis. And of course, this is a great, uh, this is a great chapter. And uh, because it once again depicts the big story that's going on here. So to reiterate, uh, uh, you know, some things uh, about uh, Genesis, I would suggest that the overall theme is God's blessing, God's blessing, or just the concept of blessing. And that, of course, the greatest blessing is uh, the... Um, is redemption, you know, the redemption that we have in Yeshua. But it is, but uh, that does not mean that ever that is the only thing to ever uh, understand about blessing. And uh, and so, in the beginning of the story, in the beginning of the Bible, uh, we know that God blesses humanity. He creates everything. And really what blessing is, is God's relationship to everything that, that he creates. So, bless, so the, benef- the benefits of the blessing are different whether you're a tree, you're a cow, or you're a human being, right? But there are blessings associated with being created by God, okay? So we could say that God has a relationship with everything that he, everything he creates, and that is really what blessing, blessing is, the infusion of life to all that he creates. Okay? And uh, we know from the story of uh, creation that everything is created for human beings. Now, so God desires to bless, meaning infuse life on mankind in all different kinds of ways so that uh, mankind uh, uh, really reflects the image and likeness of God uh, and enjoys uh, the creation and enjoys relationship with God, his, the, the creation, and each other. But, all, but every step of the way, human beings rebel and therefore forfeit the forfeit the benefits of this relationship. And we see that it pains God, right? Uh, right in the middle of uh, chapters 1 to 11, right in the middle is where we read that God looks at his creation and he's pained by what has happened, by how uh, it has, so to speak, been ruined, corrupted. And he uses the word over and over again. Corrupted which means ruined. Right? So it's very painful to God. It's, he uses this great statement. Uh, it grieved him in his heart. And so, when we come to chapter 12, we see here that now God chooses a man, and through this man and his descendants, they will become the channel of blessing to humanity. The channel of blessing to humanity. Chapter 12 in verses 1 to 3, and we've already covered this, but it's so important, has to do with every, this is good news for humanity, right? Because 
the bottom line is, is that all the nations are blessed. That's the bottom line, that, that through Abraham, God gives uh, Abraham and his descendants certain blessings, but by far the emphasis on this is that Abraham and his descendants are to be a blessing to humanity in all kinds of, in all kinds of ways. And of course, the pinnacle is the restoration of humanity through Messiah Yeshua, right? That's why we read in the Gospel of John, salvation is from the Jews. It's in the fourth chapter. The reason it says salvation is from the Jews is because of this, this uh, calling to be a blessing uh, to the nations. So now in Genesis, what we see here, uh, we read about the descendants. Remember we said it's kind of like one long genealogy. We read about all these descendants with narrative stories along the way. Uh, And we saw first uh, Abraham uh, uh, having a difficult time. There's a famine. He goes down to Egypt. And we saw what what happens there. And God has to uh, uh, come and and save, uh, save the day. So there's a threat. There's a threat to the promise right away at the end of chapter 12. Now in chapter 13, we have the next challenge. And we will see this all the way through Abraham's life. He faced, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's life, frankly. And the 12 sons' lives, the entire book. Challenge after challenge after challenge to the promise. Okay? So now in chapter 13, we have a new challenge. And we begin in verse 5. This is really where it begins. Now, we haven't heard much from Lot. Uh, other than that he accompanied Abraham and Sarah in their entourage, uh, coming uh, from uh, Haran uh, down to uh, Canaan. And evidently, Lot, of course, has been with Abraham and Sarah while they were in Egypt, but we don't read about Lot, probably because he's, this is an episode where he's not uh, prominent or uh, he's not in. But he's traveled with them, and, and Lot himself is blessed by being related to Abraham. So we see now in verse 5, Now Lot, who went with Abraham, there you go, also had flocks and herds and tents. Now when it says tents, it doesn't mean like the camping store, okay? Like, wow, what an array of tents he had. Tents refers to the people that traveled with him, Okay. It's not talking about like canvas things that you stick in the ground that I always have to ask somebody else to put up or something like that. Okay, it's referring to the, the entourage, okay, the, the people that travel with him. So Lot, like Abram, was a wealthy man, had lots of animals and people traveling, traveling with him. So that, we can just pause right there and say, you see, Abram was a blessing. He was a blessing Uh, to his nephew, Lot. Now, it says in verse 6, And the land could not sustain them while dwelling together, for their possessions were so great they were not able to remain, uh, they were not able to remain together. All right. So, wow. Now, the question is, when it says the land could not sustain them while they were dwelling together, it doesn't mean that the land wasn't big enough. It meant that they were too close to each other, evidently. And that they both uh, had uh, lots of animals and lots of people. 
And uh, we see, and there was strife between the herdsmen of Abraham's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. Now the Canaanite and the Perizzite were dwelling with them in the land. Well, it's, you know, one thing that's interesting, they don't, they don't seem to have a challenge with the tents and the flocks of the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Uh, maybe they were inconsequential or they weren't uh, so close to each other, right? Uh, but we see that it wasn't so much Lot and Abraham, but it was their herdsmen, the people that traveled with them, that, uh, that uh, there, there, was, there was strife. Now, it's interesting here, uh, the strife between Lot's people and Abram's people. The word, uh, you know, there's two words that you could choose from, I suppose, to describe strife. One is uh, merivah, right? You know that word, mirabah, right? The quarreling, uh, the, the quarreling when, uh, the complaining, basically, uh, of the people to, uh, to Moses, right? Sort of a complaining kind of word. Then there's another word, uh, and that's the word reeve. And, and the word reeve is interesting. It's used uh, mostly in the prophets. And uh, it actually would mean something like a court case, like a, I, have a, I have a legal case against you, you know? Uh, and that is the word that is used when God is, is uh, upset over the people. And you read it in a number of the prophets, I have this against you. And he uses that word. Uh, but here, uh, the word is really a, a quarreling and complaining, and, and, uh, and so it really epitomizes the situation. Now, some have said that maybe this word is used because uh, Lot, uh, although it says that it was the herdsmen of Lot, that perhaps uh, Lot uh, was unhappy with uh, with. Uh, the land that he and his, uh, his entourage and his flocks had. We don't know that. Actually, the text here doesn't say anything negative, negative about Lot here, only that uh, Lot's people uh, were uh, quarreling with uh, Abraham's uh, people. So there's, there's strife. There's strife in the land. Okay. So what are they going to do? Now, notice in verse 8, Abram takes the initiative. Now, this is interesting that he takes the initiative to make peace because he had the uh, authority to say it a lot, as I, as I sometimes say. I think uh, the, Sephardic, the Sephardic term, uh, the, the, uh, uh, you know, the, the descendants from Spain, uh, might say in a case like this to Lot, adios right? Like, goodbye. And don't let the door uh, hit you on the way out. In other words, this is my land, the land God gave to me. Lot, go find your place. Go, right? But that's not what he does. He takes the initiative. He realizes that they have to do something. He can't just, like, placate Lot. He He has to do something, all right? So this is what he says. Please let there be no strife between you and me, nor between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brothers. Okay. So he said, now you can interpret brothers in a variety of ways, of course, but probably we're, we're family. You know, uh, we're, we're one. And so let there be no strife between us. 
So we see here Abram recognized or had it within him, this calling that God had on him to be a blessing, to be a blessing, to uh, preserve relationship. And so he takes the initiative and he does something that he doesn't have to do. But what we learn here is, is that Abraham values peace. He values being a blessing. Blessing is all about relationship. Blessing is all about, uh, 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 it epitomizes the relationship that we have with God, that we have with each other. Uh, And the benefits of blessing are the building up of relationship in one way or another. There's There's a thousand or more different ways you could describe the manifestation of blessing, okay? Depending on the situation. Uh, But here, Abram does not want to have strife between he and Lot. So he is willing to give something up. It's not about Abraham. That's what I'm trying to say. Abram doesn't see this as all about himself. He's willing to give something up. So we see here, in verse 9, is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. Uh, If to the left, then I will go to the right. Or if to the right then I will go to the left. Now, it's amazing what people can do with a verse like this. Some have wondered what direction was Abraham facing when he said right and left? Because if you do directions like me, you know, it can get confusing. If I am standing like this and I say, go to the right or the left, immediately, I don't, is Lot facing him or is he on the same side as him? Are they facing, if he's facing north, it's do different direct. May I suggest that basically he's saying, pick what land you would like, okay? He, pick what land you would like, Lot. All right, now, so this is interesting. He, he doesn't demand anything. He says, you pick what land you would like. It's not about Abraham's rights or what's fair or any of that, Okay. It is, his, it is his desire to bless Lot, that is his calling, and that blessing means giving him the opportunity to choose what land he would like. So Lot lifted up his eyes and saw all the, and this is a fascinating verse, um, and saw all the valley of the Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. That's important for us to know. Okay, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, as you go to Zor. Now, when we're reading this, and you know anything about Israel, you got to wonder when you think about what Israel looks like today. Today, yesterday, a thousand years ago, two thousand years ago, three thousand years ago. Why would anybody choose the area that Lot desired? Because that's where the Dead Sea is. And and the southern part of the desert, it's desert. People generally don't live there, you know? But before before the judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah, evidently, this was just a lush, beautiful place to be. So one of the things that we learn is, wow, that, you know, the judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah continues to this day, right? When you're on your bus 
you know, and you're going to uh, the Dead Sea, right? Wow. Uh, we see still the ramifications of the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah today. But in that day, look what they, he likens it unto the garden of the Lord. You can't get any better than that, right? The garden of the Lord, the garden of Eden. You know what's interesting about that is that in this context, the garden of Eden is a real place. Like, in other words, not a, uh, not a metaphor of something, that it's a real place. Uh, because the land that Lot chose is a real place. And so, now, some have gone so far as to say, maybe that's where, maybe that's where it was located. Well, you can argue that all day. But the point is, is that it was a beautiful uh, a place, like under the Garden of Eden. You know, imagine if you go somewhere like on a, on a real serious vacation, you know, and it's just a gorgeous place and you were going to describe it. You know, you might, I, I can only imagine like what the Garden of Eden must, must be like, you know? So this was really a beautiful place that a lot saw and, uh, and he chose. Now, again, uh, some people would say that, you know, Lot was uh, kind of like uh, Eve. In, in this regard, it looked good, uh, you know, and it, it, it seemed like the right, uh, the right uh, place to be, and so, so he chose it. It is not the promised land, interestingly enough. It was not the promised land, but I, uh, Lot chose it. Now, I would say that's a little too much for the text. The text doesn't tell us anything negative about Lot. Other than that, it really looked great, and that's where he went. And, uh, and I think we should probably just stick, with, stick uh, right, right there. Now, so Lot chose for himself the valley of the Jordan, and Lot journeyed eastward. Now, that's a real loaded word in uh, Genesis. Generally speaking, when tra people travel east, it's not a good thing, okay? You'll have to go back and listen to all the previous messages. Uh, but think about it. As, you know, everybody that travels east, it's, it's, not, it's not good, in the, especially in the first 11 chapters, okay? They're like headed toward Babylon, and, always, and heading east, heading east always was like away um, and led to bad things. And so it is interesting that Lot, it, the way the text is written, Lot journeys eastward. Thus they separated from each other. See, then it says, Abram settled in the land of Canaan. So we see that, uh, uh, that where Lot goes, where Sodom and Gomorrah was not considered uh, the, land of, uh, the land of Canaan. Well, Lot settled in the cities of the valley and moved his tents as far as Sodom. Now we have in verse 13, a little information that's sort of like coming attractions. Now the men of Sodom were wicked exceedingly and sinners against the Lord. And, uh, and so here we go. Lot moves to a place, and uh, perhaps he had no idea, but he's moving to a place where people were sinners and were, were, sinned exceedingly and were uh, indeed uh, against, uh, against the Lord. So he gives, um, so Abram gives Lot this opportunity. And Lot chooses the land that he would that he would have. Now, what's another thing that's interesting is that when Abraham now it's going to now we read, then the Lord said to Abraham after Lot had separated from him, now lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are northward, southward, eastward, and westward. 
For all the land which you see, I will give it to you and to your descendants forever. What's interesting is that from where Abraham is, it's not that great looking land. So it's very interesting. At least at this point, at this point, it seems like Lot has like, uh, he really uh, made out pretty well here, seemingly, that what Abraham sees, think about it if you've been to, to Israel, you know? It's kind of hilly, rocky, what are you going to grow there, and, you know, all that kind of thing. Uh, and, uh, and here, the Jordan Valley is where Lot goes. So it seems that uh, Lot has made out uh, uh, quite well here. Now, he goes on to say, God reiterates now, uh, takes the opportunity to reiterate to Abram the, uh, the promise of, of land and descendants. And I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if anyone can number the dust of the earth, then your descendants can also be numbered. Arise, walk about the land through its length and breadth, for I will give it to you. Then Abram moved his tent and came and dwelt by the oaks of Mamre, which are in Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. And so we see that uh, Abram desires that there be no strife. Uh, he desires uh, that uh, he desires to be a blessing to uh, to Lot, uh, and uh, in doing so, he, um, uh, in a sense, dies to self in a way. He forgoes seemingly uh, to choose the uh, the best part of the of the land. Now, you know, Abram was a rather interesting on two occasions here, of uh, willing to forego, seemingly, that which he desired. So here you have the land on one end of the Abraham story, and then there's Isaac on the other end of the Abraham story. That here, God promises him uh, this land flowing with milk and honey and everything, and he seems to give away uh, you know, a, a beautiful part of it. And then later on, we know that uh, the whole issue of having an heir is a very important part of Abraham's life and story. And here, seemingly, see, again, seemingly, he has to give it up. It tells us something about, uh, about Abraham, that his desire, not only to be obedient to God, but to be a blessing, to be a blessing, whether it be to God or to Lot. Abraham takes seriously, and you shall be a blessing. And we see uh, this is what Abraham desires to do. Now, he is uh, on the fast road of discipleship, and we do see along the way there's a few potholes, but by and large, this is what Abraham desires uh, to do. So it's, it's interesting that we can, you know, we can certainly see ourselves in this, uh, in this story. Because, you know, when you think about it, God made this great promise to uh, Abraham about land, right? But the reality is, is that he never, he never sees the fruition of this in his life. Abraham really never sees in his whole life, he never sees uh, this whole thing. He, he sees, yes, he has descendants. He doesn't see them as like the stars in the sky or the sand on the seashore. Uh, but he has descendants, and he never in his whole life 
uh, has control of all of this land. And it's interesting because neither does his son, and neither does his grandson, and neither do his great-grandchildren see, see this. And may I suggest that neither do his descendants hundreds of years later, when the children of Israel enter the land of Canaan, they never experience, as far as the eye can see, controlling all that land. Generations go by, and we see that uh, basically the Jewish people are existing almost like a, uh, like a confederation of 12 city-states, not quite completely unified. And we read there, everyone did what was right in their own eyes because there was no king. They still did not have control of all the land. Then we see that uh, kings uh, come, uh, uh, Saul, and then David, and then, and then Solomon, and, and then uh, this, uh, basically, for all intents and purposes, a civil war, although they didn't really, uh, they didn't have a, a war where they fought against each other, but ten of the tribes separate from Judah and Benjamin, and you have two nations. For a short period of time during Solomon's reign would be the closest that Israel ever came to uh, the fulfillment of what God promised uh, Abraham. But even there, there was strife, strife in the land. Even there, there was not tranquility. There was not peace. There was not overall, uh, overall blessing. Uh, and so, uh, uh, then you come hundreds of years later, there's the captivity. Still, the, what God promised Abraham has not come to pass. Yeshua comes. Yeshua lives. He does everything God uh, has him do, of course. He, he heals people. He teaches. He exorcises demons. Uh, he dies for our sins and he's raised from the dead. The Romans still are in control. Romans are still in control. 70 AD, the destruction of the temple, the destruction of the city, and then we can fast forward 2,000 years to our own day, and we're still waiting. We're still waiting. Now, when Yeshua came, it's very interesting that, you know, we like to say, you know, experiencing Israel's future today and recognizing that we are we have the first fruits of the spirit but yet we wait for the resurrection of our of our body we we wait for a new heaven and a new earth we're in that in between period you know what i mean where you know where we say uh present but not yet there's a million phrases uh, that that we like to say you know uh we like to use the word it's a prolepsis this in between period right i uh, but you know what our ancestors have been experiencing this for thousands of years. You have this good news in Genesis chapter 12, and we're still waiting, still waiting for this land, still waiting for this peace, still waiting for all that. And, you know, it is very interesting because the way the ultimate blessing is described in the, in the uh, Bible, it's described in a lot of ways. You know, no more tears, no more sorrow, no more disease, no more pain, no more suffering, you know, those kinds of things. But overwhelmingly, the ultimate blessing is described in terms of unity, like wolves and lambs laying down together, 
like the Egyptians and the Assyrians and the Israelis all coming together and worshiping the God of Israel together. Like swords turned into plowshares. You know, like the passage in Isaiah, the passages in Isaiah that say that they won't even learn war again. So blessing, really, by and large, it seems, that in a huge scheme of things, blessing is very much tied to this issue of no strife. And Abraham, in his relationship with Lot, here in chapter 13, really demonstrates the ultimate reality of blessing, removing the, uh, removing the strife. Yet at the same time, not experiencing the blessing in, in its uh, totality. And certainly we know that today we read passages in the New Covenant since the coming of the Messiah that, for example, in, uh, in Ephesians chapter 2, let's make that chapter 1. In Ephesians chapter 1, we read a great verse here about blessing. In Ephesians chapter 1, and you may be familiar with it, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Yeshua HaMashiach, Yeshua the Messiah, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Messiah. So that's, you know, the word blesses used three times in that verse. Ooh, that must mean something. Yes, indeed it does. And you'll need to come to the uh, MSI mini course on blessing and you'll get the whole Geschichte on that one. Okay, the ganze Geschichte on blessing, if you know what I'm trying to say. Okay, so I'll save some of that, but it's so good. Anyway, I, when it speaks of spiritual blessing, that we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing, that can mean a variety of things. It could mean the uh, like heavenly invisible blessings as opposed to earthly visible blessings. Could mean that. Uh, it could mean all blessing that there is because everything is spiritual. But it probably doesn't mean that because that's not what, what's in the list. The third option is, is that spiritual here relates to blessings of the Spirit. That the blessings that we have via, as a result of, and through, the indwelling of the Ruach. And that seems to be what he's driving at. Uh, because if you go down toward the end of this section of Ephesians, he says in verse 13 and 14, so it's like his little sandwich, you know, verse 3 at the beginning and verses 13 and 14 at the end. Uh, he says, In him you also, if you're listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, meaning you Gentiles, that's what that's referring to, okay? Also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who was given as a pledge of our inheritance, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. I would suggest that that is the spiritual blessings that we have is the forgiveness of sins, adoption as sons, as children of God, relationship with God. That is the blessing. See, this, this now uh, relationship with God that our ancestors before the coming of the Messiah uh, could not have. Now, the, the presence of the Spirit in our lives is a down payment of great future blessing, great future benefits of being in relationship uh, with, uh, with God. Uh, we see, sometimes we see some of it, but we certainly don't, we don't see all of it. That is 
a new heaven and a new earth and redeemed bodies and, and all, that goes, uh, all that goes along with that complete unity of this world, you know? That is uh, what is that is what is to uh, what is to come. So in a way, we're kind of like Abraham in that we can live in our own world. When I say our own world, whatever we have, we can't affect what's going on in other parts of the world and world leaders, except via prayer, of course. But I mean, hands on in terms of personal relationship, we can in a way be like Abraham. And that is that we can be initiators of unity. We can be initiators of blessing, right? And think about all those verses that talk about forgiveness, for example. When we are called to be like Messiah and forgive, right? We know that. We read that in many places in the New Covenant. We may not realize it, but that when we forgive, we are being a blessing. We are being a blessing when we forgive. It means that we are taking the initiative. We're not demanding what's ours or what's owed to us or anything like that. And in fact, what we're doing is we're actually bearing, if we forgive someone, that means they've done something perhaps to us, we're actually bearing that. And we're not beating it out of them. And then we'll forgive them. After we make them feel as guilty as absolutely possibly can be, then I will forgive them. You know, that's not forgiveness in, in the Bible. That's getting even. That's getting back. That is false humility and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Okay? Uh, it is, that is blessing someone. That is how you bless. We bless the people by uh, being kind, by being generous, by, by giving of ourselves. Right? Now, what's interesting is, and I just had this conversation with one of our but Avraham uh, students, uh, which was great. I am just loving my meetings with them. In, uh, in Galatians, book of Galatians, you'll notice in the fifth chapter, and then we're going to go back to Ephesians for a minute. In the fifth chapter, you have two ways of living, right? One's called by the deeds of the flesh, and the other's the fruit of the Spirit. And they're interesting to compare. So the deeds of the flesh which is stuff we do on our own, not empowered by the Spirit, as if, as if the Spirit of God was absent in our lives. You end up with immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery. You know, if we stop there, we'd say, oh, I'm, doing, I'm in pretty good shape. Perhaps. Maybe not. Maybe not. But perhaps. But then notice how the list continues. Enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, and now drunkenness, carousing, and then my favorite one of all, things like these, things like that, things that cause division, that cause problems, that cause all kinds of headaches and issues in life. Think about what immorality does to a marriage or to a family. Think about what drunkenness does. It breaks down relationships. It is the opposite of blessing. May I suggest it leads to what the biblical meaning of curse is, which is not like abracadabra curse. It means it's the absence of blessing, where there is no blessing, no 
benefits of relationship with God as if we're, we're totally separated from God. That's what the deeds of the flesh do. And we as Messiah followers, we can go down this road where the Spirit of God dwells in us, but it's as if he's not even there. And all it does is cause surus, big problems in life. See, it's not just a theological thing. Knowing the Lord plays a, a, a strategic role in the quality of our lives. And that's what, you see, I would say what blessing is, is the infusion of life. When God is in relationship, there is an infusion of life. And we have the potential, the ability, via the Ruach HaKodesh, to infuse life in the relationships that we have, relationships with others. Because notice now what the fruit of the Spirit is. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control against these kinds of things. There is no law, meaning you can't legislate these things. This comes via walking with the Lord. When you walk with the Lord, you are a forgiving person. You are a kind person. We're on the road to patience, right? Uh, Self-control, all those things that build relationship, that, 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 that cause us to be a channel of blessing to others. We can speak blessing into the lives of others. We can demonstrate blessing by helping, by being kind and generous. And, uh, and all of that. And that is something that God calls us to be if we are children of Abraham, whether physically descended through Isaac and Jacob or via faith in Yeshua. That is what God calls us to be. God calls us to demonstrate what Abraham was doing there in Genesis chapter 13. Let there be no strife between us. And as I said, Abraham takes the initiative. I think that one of the great positive things that we don't say enough when we share the good news of the Messiah, why should people believe in Yeshua, is because of the quality of life. There's not a placebo here, that a real quality of life, of rich relationship and blessing, we're able to uh, embrace, you see. And that the blessing goes even beyond the grave. Forever. Because whatever blessing we are able to experience in this life is just the appetizer to the future. Whatever blessing people just naturally do for each other ends at death. It's temporary. But the blessing that we are able to demonstrate goes on forever. Now, you know, there's a boomerang effect to all of this. That God, isn't it interesting in chapter 13, going back to it, that after Abraham takes the initiative, gives away the farm, so to speak, then God says to him, Abraham, does he say, you know, I wanted to give you that land. Why did you do that? No, he doesn't do that. He says, you look every direction, Abraham, and the land is yours. See, in other words, Abram is blessed by being a blessing. It's a great paradigm, a great model here in Genesis chapter 13. Abraham is blessed by being a blessing. Blessing has a boomerang effect. We are blessed by God in our spirit inwardly when we are a blessing outwardly. It is a blessing to be a blessing. We, 
we're getting blessed frontwards, backwards, and sideways. See, when we are a blessing, and it's interesting, because, you know, you take uh, something like um, Psalm, uh, very quickly, Psalm uh, 103. It's one of my favorite Psalms. I have a great story about it, but I don't have time to tell it. But some other time. Oh, why not? Okay. So, uh, this is very interesting, Rachel, because it, it, it has to do with you. And that is, so I was called to go to the hospital, right? Remember when your husband was, was near death? And you said, read something from the Bible. So I read Psalm 23. And you said, he's still alive. Read something happy. You don't mind me saying that, do you? It's one of my favorite stories of all time. Because you were right. Because after that, I learned something. So I appreciate that. Okay. So I read Psalm 103, certainly much more cheerful, right? You know, uh, because not that Psalm 23 is not cheerful, but we just associate it, you know, we associate it with the grave. You know what I mean? It's a wonderful Psalm. That took way too much time. Okay. It says in verse one, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits. And then it goes on and describes his benefits. The, the attitude of the psalm is one of joy. So in other words, the psalmist is blessing God. You know, the psalmist is blessing God. And he's blessed. That's why he says, bless the Lord, O my soul. He's talking to himself. He says, be like me, saying, Howard, bless the Lord. And when I remember what he's done, I'm blessed. There's a boomerang effect, both physically, in our lives, you know, inwardly, uh, when we do things for people and otherwise. Let's pray. Lord, uh, thank you, God, for the uh, opportunity of, uh, of uh, being here today and of, Lord, uh, of the, uh, the blessings that we, that we have in you. Lord, I pray that we would indeed be a blessing. I pray that we would be a blessing. And I pray, Lord, that just as we read in the book of Hebrews, uh, that Abraham longed to see the city but he died without seeing it. Lord, we're like that. We also travel in the wilderness. We also travel in the wilderness, Lord. And uh, may, we, may we take heart to remember the promises that you have made to us, Lord. And may we, Lord, uh, remember that there is a city that awaits us, Lord. And in the meantime, may we be like Abraham. Lord, in the meantime... May there be no strife among us. May we be the initiators of blessing. Uh, may the fruit of the Spirit, Lord, emanate from us uh, to build relationships, whether we're talking about at home, at work, uh, here, Lord. And may there be a quality of life to us uh, that Abraham was able to have with Lot, that they are brothers. And Lord, we are brothers and sisters. And so, Lord, may we, may we realize, God, the unity that you have indeed uh, called us to. Lord, uh, uh, we read in a variety of places in the New Covenant about the unity uh, of the Spirit, Lord. And so, Lord, may we be of one mind. May we be, uh, may we be people, Lord, who share uh, that unity of faith, God. And we pray your blessing in Yeshua's name. Amen.